0: On the Sunday before Calvary, our Lord Jesus comes to Jerusalem in his triumphal entry. Christ rides in on a colt. The people receive him by laying down their garments and branches. The crowd sing praises, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Mark in verses 12 to 19 then explains what happens on the morrow, or the next day. On the Monday, Jesus Christ curses a fig tree and cleanses the temple. Now these two incidences are certainly linked together, but we will exposit them in two separate sermons so today our focus will be on Christ cursing the fig tree and our three headings are one the fig tree and Christ's person two the fig tree and Christ's prophecy three the fig tree and Christ's people so first of all the fig tree and Christ's person This narrative is rich in Christology. It is rich in the person of Jesus Christ. Mark's emphasis throughout the whole gospel is to lift up that Jesus Christ is a true human being. And this reveals Christ's true humanity in two ways. One, he is hungry. Two, his finite knowledge. In verse 12, it explains how Christ is lodging in Bethany, remember two miles east of Jerusalem. He comes into Jerusalem and he is hungry. Hunger is when your body is lacking energy or strength. The stomach communicates to the mind that it needs food. And your inner being has physical senses whereby you desire food. It's a very human experience. And here we see Jesus Christ, his physical body is beginning to get weak and lacking strength and energy. His stomach is communicating to his mind and he has an inward desire to eat food. Is that not you and me? When we have the inward pangs and grows of the stomach and there's an inward longing to eat food, Christ experienced the very same thing. Because Christ's humanity is a true humanity. And he, as a man, possessed all the common, natural, sinless infirmities of man. This is no isolated incident. In Matthew chapter 4... He did not eat for 40 days and 40 nights. He was no robot. He was no demagogue. He was no superman. He was a real man. And it says he was hungry. On the cross, he had not had a drink of water, most likely for about 24 hours or so. And he says, I thirst. In John chapter 4, he's on a very long journey. He's walking to one place to the next. And it says in John 4, 6, Now Jacob's well was there, Jesus therefore being wearied, tired. He sat thus on the well. Have you ever had a walk? Maybe you've gone out the woods, you are going on a trail, and you're just tired and you just need to sit down somewhere for a rest. Christ experienced the very same thing. Jesus Christ is a true man. He hungered. But secondly, Mark reveals Christ's true humanity in his finite knowledge. Verse 13 And seeing a fig tree afar off, having leaves, he came, if haply he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. He's hungry. He's walking along the road. And what does he see at a distance? A fig tree. He thinks, he expects there to be fruit on this fig tree. And so when he's hunger, he comes forward to the fig tree, and lo and behold, there is no figs. There's no fruit. He didn't know it. Now, to understand some of the difficulties of this verse, there is not two things. One, it says that it was not yet season, and two, having saw leaves. When it says it wasn't the season... This is teaching us that in the land of Palestine that the season for ripe fruits was in May to June was the early season and then August to October the later season but fig trees also produce early fruit that is not ripe yet small knobs which we call green figs they're edible And this is the kind of fruit quoted in Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 13. The fig tree putteth forth her green figs. So pre-ripened figs which are able to be eaten. But it says leaves here. Figs are only produced either before leaves are produced or at the very same time. So if you see a fig tree and you see leaves growing, you're right to conclude there is fruit on this tree. And so Jesus Christ examining the tree from afar, there's leaves, there must be fruit on this, I'm hungry, he goes to the fruit and there is none. He did not know whether there was fruit or not On this tree. And so this teaches that Jesus Christ did not know all things. And this is not an isolated case. In Mark chapter 13, Jesus is teaching about the things concerning the second coming of Himself to judge the quick and the dead. But what day shall He return? He doesn't know. He does not know. Mark thirteen thirty-two. Of that day and hour knoweth no man, no not the angels, neither the Son but the Father. So Jesus Christ does not know all things. He is finite and limited in his knowledge. Now, You might be confused. Did I not preach from this very pulpit only seven days ago that Jesus Christ was omniscient? He knows all things. And yet here today I'm publicly preaching that Jesus Christ did not know all things. He had a finite knowledge. Am I contradicting myself? No, I am not. I am teaching what the Bible teaches. I am teaching what orthodox Christology teaches. Jesus Christ is not either or, but both and. He is both omniscient and limited in his knowledge. How can two things Be true. It is because of the uniqueness of the person of Jesus Christ. He is one person with two natures. His person is the eternal Logos, the Son of God. And this one person has two natures a divine nature and a Human nature. And at all times, Jesus Christ's two natures retain the fullness or the attributes of their nature. So Christ's divine nature is always infinite, eternal, immutable, impassable, omnipresent, omnipotent and omniscient. And his human nature is always truly human, finite, limited, passable, mutable, able to grow, mature, and develop. But it's important to know in this one person with two natures, The two natures are not mixed together, we might say. Or as the Westminster Confession says, without conversion, composition, or confusion. Quite simply, this means this. The divine never receives human properties and the human nature never receives divine properties. So the divine never becomes passable or mutable or finite or any of these things. And the same with the humanity of Christ. The humanity of Christ never becomes eternal. The humanity of Christ never becomes immutable. The humanity of Christ is never omnipotent. The humanity of Christ is never omnipresent. The humanity of Christ is never omniscient because if the humanity was any of these things, it would cease to be a true human nature. Even in Jesus Christ's glorified state, his humanity is not omnipotent, omnipresent, or omniscient, but finite. So how can we say Jesus Christ is both omniscient and finite? The technical language is both natures are predicated to the person. Or another way of saying it, Jesus Christ's two natures are attributed to the person. And nature does not act, a person acts. So, I don't talk about it. So, if I see or feel or eat or do, I don't say it. It, my eyes saw. It touched. It went somewhere. It is breathing. It is. No, I'm a person. A person acts. Craig Scott saw. Craig Scott touched. Craig Scott went. And I have personal pronouns of. He or me or my, not it. And nature does not act. A person as a distinct, intelligent, rational being acts. And so when Jesus Christ acts, he acts as a person according to both natures. So two classic texts to help us. John 3.13 the son of man which is in heaven. Not was, not will be, is in heaven. Now Jesus Christ's humanity is very finite. It's right there before Nicodemus' eyes. His humanity is not everywhere, but only one place at one time before Nicodemus. Yet at the same time, he can say the son of man which is in heaven. Because the divine nature is omnipresent. And both natures, finitude and infinitude, are attributed to the person Jesus Christ, who is both right before Nicodemus and everywhere, including heaven. Oh, Acts chapter 20, verse 28. God purchased the church with his own blood. God doesn't have a body, God is a material. God is spirit. Only humanity has blood. In terms of this context, obviously animals have blood. And only humanity can die. But both natures are attributed to the person. Jesus Christ is God. And as Jesus Christ shed his blood for the remissions of sins, God shed his own blood to purchase the church. And so God there is both able to suffer and not able to suffer. But it's the person who acts. This is why we believe that Mary is the mother of God. This is why we believe God died On the cross. To deny any of these two former statements is to deny biblical, Chalcedonian, orthodox Christology. Now, how is it there are times when Jesus Christ knows things he shouldn't know and then doesn't know things? Well, the how is easier than the why. How is because of this. You start with the person, not the nature what people do wrongly today they start with the natures they'll quote John Owen they'll say John Owen says the only immediate communication between the divine nature and the human nature was in the act of the incarnation and that's it that's correct but you don't start there or you make Jesus Christ only a prophet you start with the person the son of God the logos and the person knew things because the Logos in the divine nature would communicate to the human nature by the person of the Holy Spirit. And we see an example of this in Matthew chapter 12. You think of miracles. You think of casting out demons. What sort of power is needed to do that? Divine power. And in Matthew chapter 12, verse 32, Jesus' scribe, describes how he is able to exercise divine power. It is not immediately through his humanity, but by communication of the Holy Spirit. For he says, if by the Spirit of God I cast out. Now, he's no mere prophet who the Spirit has helped him to have more power, but the person, the Son of God, exercising authority by communicating his divine nature to his human nature through the preceding Holy Spirit. Maintaining that both natures are not mixed or confused or converted, but are still operating under the one person by the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And now the why is a wee bit more difficult to answer. Why is he knew some things and not others? Well, we can simply say this, because he knew when he needs to know, and he did not know when he did not need to know. It was necessary at times for the divinity to come forth, whether that's to reveal or to minister, And there were other times when it was not necessary to come forth. So when Jesus Christ knew what was in the heart of a man, it was necessary for him to know, and he knew because he's God. And the divine nature communicated to the human nature by the Spirit of God what was in man's heart, but always from an act of authority as the person. When he was nowhere near, but he knew Nathaniel was under the fig tree, the Logos knew because the divine communicated to the human by the person of the Spirit. And when Jesus Christ comes and he's looking at fig trees, it's not necessary for him to know whether there's fig trees or not. He's hungry, there's leaves, there should be, then he discovers there's not. And so the Logos does not communicate the knowledge of it from the divine nature to the human nature by the Spirit and Jesus Christ did not know. And the very same for the second coming. His divine nature knows absolutely because there's only one will in God, not three. And the divine nature knows exactly when the second coming. But it was not yet necessary for the mediator to know. So the Logos, the Son of God, did not communicate to the human nature the knowledge of the Second Coming. So here we see Jesus Christ's true humanity in that he hungered and he had finite knowledge. Now, why is this important? Three very brief reasons. One, you cannot be saved. Unless you believe and confess, Jesus had a true humanity. First John chapter four verse six. Sorry, First John chapter four verse two. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. How do you have the Holy Spirit? Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, true human nature, is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. So if you deny a true, full humanity in Jesus Christ, you're not of God. The Holy Spirit does not dwell within you. And therefore, if we are going to be true believers in Jesus Christ, we believe and confess Jesus Christ had a true humanity. Not a deified humanity, not a superhumanity, but a common, ordinary, but sinless humanity. Second reason, Christ's humiliation He was in the form of God, Philippians 2. He did not humble himself to be something higher than man. He became exactly what man is without sin. All the common infirmities, weaknesses and limitations of humanity he took upon himself. This is why Paul in 1 Timothy 3.16 just flabbergasted by this great is the mystery of godliness god manifested in the flesh and it's only when you make true statements of the person of christ are we amazed mary is the mother of god wow god hungered lacked Needed energy, needed strength, thirsted, was weary. Wow. God was ignorant. He did not know what was on a fig tree. Wow. God died on the cross. Wow. You take away the true humanity. You take away the wowness, the amazement, the astonishment, the wonder of the humiliation of Jesus Christ. God, united to the human nature in the person of Jesus Christ, experienced these things. And that should simply cause us to worship. Incomparable. Mysterious. Unsearchable, unfathomable, yet true. And our hearts should just stand and praise God who did this for us. And third reason, Christ's mediator. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 17 says, He did not take upon him the nature of angels, but the flesh and blood of a human being. Why? Why? To be our high priest, to make reconciliation for sins, and to show sympathy and give aid and strength in our need. If Jesus Christ does not have a true humanity, we are not truly saved. The old classic term from Gregory of Nazianzus whatever is not assumed is not healed. And so he's a superman or a demigod then he did not save and die in the place of human beings. But then he couldn't be your high priest either because he can't understand you. You lack, you're weak, you suffer. You do not know all things. Now you have someone who has no idea what you're talking about. But he is our sympathetic high priest who knows what it is to hunger and thirst and be tired he knows what it is to be sad and sorrowful he knows what it is to weep at the grave of a loved one he knows that he doesn't know what's around the corner but he must simply trust in God and therefore you come to one who knows what you're going through who's experienced what you've experienced. And therefore, he can give you all the aid, encouragement and direction you'll ever, ever need. And that's your Christ, a true human being. Love him, worship him, pray for his high priest to give compassion and help For your every need. But secondly, the fig tree and Christ's prophecy. What does Christ do when he discovers there are no figs on this fig tree? Verse 14. And Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And then Matthew tells us straight away it began to wither. And on the next day, from verse 20 to 21, Peter and the disciples are walking again from Bethany to Jerusalem. This time it's a Tuesday. They see the tree and it's withered up from the very roots. What's going on? I did not know this to this week. But the commentators all said that this is a deeply controversial passage, and people have objected to it. Atheists have said they do not believe in Christianity because what Christ did here. And the commentaries I read uh, cited a man called Bertrand Russell, who you might know the name as a very influential philosopher and atheist from last century. He wrote a book, Why I'm Not a Christian. He said his number one reason why he's not a Christian is because to believe in hell is immoral. And the Bible teaches hell, therefore it's immoral. Jesus Christ believed in hell, therefore he's immoral, and I am not a Christian. But then he gives other subordinate reasons why he's not a Christian, and he comes to this passage. He says, here's Jesus Christ, and he's a vindictive, petty man. He was hungry. He was wanting food. And just like sometimes people may do, when they find there's no food in the cupboard, they slam the door and they're angry and upset about it. And that's what Jesus is doing here. And I want nothing to do with Jesus. He says here, quote, He is showing vindictive fury because it was not the right time of year for figs, And you really could not blame the tree I cannot myself feel that either in matter of wisdom or in matter of virtue, Christ stands quite as high as some other people known to history. I think it should be put that Buddha and Socrates are above him in these respects. But professing Christians are not that better at times. A well-known biblical scholar, again from last century, T.W. Manson, he quotes, It is a tale of miraculous power wasted in the service of ill-temper. For the supernatural energy employed to blast the unfortunate tree might have been more usefully expended in forcing a crop of figs out of season as it stands It is simply incredible. Now you may disagree, but why do you disagree? Why did Jesus Christ come and curse this fig tree after he was hungry and he looked for food and there was not? Why did he do it? Jesus Christ after discovering there is no fruit takes the opportunity to teach a lesson he acts as a prophet and prophesies that if the professing church does not bear fruit god's judgment will come upon her and by application You who profess, if you do not bear fruit, you'll be judged and cursed of God. And you say, where is that in the text? And that's a good question. First of all, you need to understand the Old Testament use of the fig tree. The fig tree was a sign of Israel. And often, when God was going to judge Israel in her sin, he would use the language of cursing fig trees. Simply two examples, but in your bulletin, there's many more Bible references. In Hosea chapter 9, verse 10, I saw your fathers in the first ripe in the fig tree at her first time. So, when you were away back, when you were well, when I chose you, you were a fig tree to me and then Jeremiah 8 13 God's coming to judge Israel for her fruitlessness and listen to the language I will surely consume them saith the Lord there shall be no figs on the fig tree and Hosea two twelve, same language I will destroy them as the fig tree And in the New Testament, when Jesus Christ uses the fig tree, he uses it of bearing fruit in judgment. In Luke chapter 13, he speaks of the parable of the fig tree. When someone comes to this fig tree looking for fruit, and there's no fruit, and he's going to cut it down and cast it into the fire, and then someone says, no, wait, wait for a year. And after a year, if there's still no fruit, cut it down and put it into a fire. And he uses that to look at Israel and say, Israel is the professing people of God with all the privileges and they should be judged by God. But I'm going to give them an extended time. And if they bear fruit, they will survive. But if they don't bear fruit, they shall be cut. Down. and what's the context of this phrase what did Jesus do the night before he went into the temple and what did he say in the temple Luke chapter 19 says he wept for Jerusalem and then he spoke of the destruction of the temple what's he going to do on this day the Monday straight after this fig tree He goes to the temple, which is to be a house of prayer for all nations. But what is it in reality? A den of thieves. Who are Israel? Honoring God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. It says in verse 21, he cursed the fig tree. If you know your Bible, you know what the word curse means. It's a covenant word. Deuteronomy twenty-eight, twenty-nine. If Israel are not obedient, if Israel do not bear fruit, God's curses come upon them. And lastly, did Jesus Christ say this and do this of his own private position? Did he do it simply with no one around? What does the end of verse 14 say? The disciples heard it. So putting this all together, this is biblical contextual evidence that Jesus Christ is acting as a prophet teaching those who profess but do not have fruit will be under God's curse. He's simply teaching Matthew 7 or over again. Ye shall know them by their fruits and on the last day there will many people say lord lord and he will say depart from me i never knew you ye workers of iniquity and therefore you must ask yourself and i must ask myself because we are the fig tree is there only foliage on our tree or is there fruit Just as Christ expected the fig tree to have fruit, he expects us who profess his name to have fruit. Just as Christ came to inspect the tree for fruit, he's inspecting our lives. Do we have fruit? Are you someone just like Israel with foliage and leaves and baptism and church attendance and orthodox theology and a good moral living? Or do you have something deeper and inner and fruitful? What is this fruit he's expecting? We don't have to guess. In verse 20 to 26, now it's a Tuesday. Tuesday. And Peter sees it and he says, look at that tree, you cursed it. And Jesus Christ therefore interprets what he does. And he mentions the fruit that he's looking for. And what does he say in verse 22? Have faith in God. Here it's in the imperative, it's a command. It's a continuous command. It's abiding, continuous faith. Faith is something of the soul, it's something within, it's something of the heart. And it looks to God and trusts in God and believes in God with all his power and his goodness. You can be religious, you can be reformed, you can be conservative but not have faith. And as 1 Samuel 16 says, man looks on the outer appearance, but God looks upon the heart. And so Jesus Christ is saying this, do you have faith in God? Because what's the problem of Israel? They had their religion, but no faith. In Mark chapter 6, he comes to his own town, and what happens? Unbelief. In Mark chapter 7, you've got the scribes and the Pharisees, and they're all worshipping God outwardly, but their hearts are far from Him. And in Romans chapter 11, verse 20, what's the key central reason Israel's cut off? They were cut off because of their unbelief. Do you have faith in God? In your heart, in your soul, in your sincerity, and in your genuineness, do you trust in God? Now, how do you know you have faith in God? Jesus gives us two evidences. One, you have faith to expect answer to your prayers. And two, you have faith to forgive others. Verse 23 For verily I say to you, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Now Christ uses this illustration a lot, doesn't he? He thinks of a mountain. And he says, your faith is like this. If you say to this mountain, mountain, get up and get cast into the sea. That's faith. That's faith. But he's not speaking literally here. He's not saying we're to go about and saying, post, come down. He's speaking spiritually because verse 24 interprets us, Therefore, what's the Therefore. I say unto you, what things soever ye desire, when ye pray, believe that ye receive them, and ye shall have them. He's using it in prayer. The opposite to faith is doubt. Verse 23, doubt. Doubt means to be of two minds. And it's to be in two minds about God. Doubt here is not speaking of the man in Mark 9 where he believed but he struggled in his assurance of faith and he says to Jesus, I believe, help mine unbelief. And Jesus knew this man had faith even though it was weak and he healed the man's son. It's not speaking about that. Doubt here is saying you Do not trust God to answer your prayer. You either doubt his goodness or you doubt his ability. So when you pray, you use the words because that's what Christians do. But you don't in your heart believe he will answer your prayer. That's doubt. You're doubting God's ability or you're doubting God's goodness. And in James chapter 1, it says in verse 6, speaking of prayer, Let him ask in faith nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. Let not that man think he shall receive anything from the Lord. So again, to clarify, because consciences could have the wrong error here, it's not speaking about the people who are like That man in Mark 9, he had faith, but he didn't have assurance of faith. He had weaker faith, but he still had faith. This is speaking of someone who doubts God's ability or goodness to answer your prayer. You doubt God himself. And the distinction is this, those who usually have weak faith or doubting faith or a lack of assurance, they doubt their own faith. They're not doubting God. They're doubting themselves. Okay? And those kinds of people need to learn and cultivate, stop looking to yourself and look at the God who you do believe is all good and all powerful. But it's clear here. If we doubt God's goodness or power to answer our prayers, it is not faith and it's not the fruit of true Believers. So, why do believers not doubt God but believe in God? Three brief reasons. One, because of who God is. Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. Okay. So you need faith to please God. Now, what is this faith? That we believe that He is, and a rewarder of them who diligently seek Him. So faith believes He is. He's existing, he's real, he's all good, he's all loving, he's all merciful, he's all powerful. He can answer any and every prayer request. Therefore, he's a rewarder of them who diligently seek him and they believe it. Ask and ye shall receive. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. Seek. And he shall be found. And therefore faith believes and prays with faith that he'll answer your prayer. Second reason. Because of Jesus Christ as the mediator. John chapter 16, 23. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it. Christ the intercessor. He's the sinless one which we heard this Wednesday of the one who stands between us and God and he purifies and perfumes all our prayers and they're acceptable to God. Therefore, when I pray in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. It's not a tag on. It's for the faith. He hears me and he will answer my prayer. Third reason why. The will of God. First John five fourteen This is the confidence not the doubt the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will he heareth us and his wells revealed Genesis to Revelation his well as our sanctification, as well as we grow in His presence, as well as we bear fruit, as well as we do good works, His well as that we're holy, as well as that we're godly, His well as that we grow. And therefore when I pray, I expect answers to prayer. Do you have faith? Do you have foliage or fruit? Do you doubt God's goodness or doubt God's power? Or do you have faith that believes God is all good, God is all powerful, God answers in the name of Jesus Christ and everything and anything I ask according to his will, it shall be answered. And then the second mark of true faith, faith to forgive others. 25 and 26. And when you stand praying, forgive if you have ought against any, that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. I take more time in this, but I'm coming to very too late. Simply this. If you're a forgiven sinner... You'll forgive other people. If you do not have faith, you will not forgive other people. Those who have faith, Ephesians 4:32, be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven you. How did Christ forgive you? Graciously. You don't deserve it, you don't deserve any forgiveness at all. He freely and fully pardons you, wills you good, and has a wonderful, prosperous, peaceful relationship with you. And therefore, you do that to others. You graciously forgive them when they don't deserve it. You graciously unloose them from guilt. You graciously will good to them. And you graciously have a prosperous, positive relationship with them. And if you don't forgive others, you're not forgiven by the Father, it says. Because it's a hypocrite. In Matthew chapter 18, the parable Jesus says, if someone sins against you seven times in a day, when they come to you and repent, what do you do? You forgive them seven times. And if you don't, you're like this man. He owed the king millions of dollars, to use modern language. And he couldn't pay it back. And the king freely took away all his debts. And then the man comes, and another man, he owes him 25 bucks. And he grabs him by the scruff of the neck. Give me that money. And the king finds out, I forgive you all this and you can't even forgive someone this little bit. Away to the tormentors. And Jesus is saying, if that's a professing believer and they're not forgiving others, then the Father has not forgiven them and they'll be cast to the tormenting place too. Because the evidence of grace in our hearts from the forgiveness of God, vertical, It's grace in our hearts, forgiveness to others, horizontal. And only those who have true, inward, genuine faith can do this. Because your pride will get in the way. Your own rights will get in the way. What you deserve will get in the way. But faith says, look what God did to me. And therefore, I'm going to show his love and grace to other people. So here is Christ and the fig tree. You, me, we are the fig tree. Do you have foliage only, or do you also have fruit? Do you have faith in God? Do you have the faith to believe God answers your prayers? And do you have the faith to forgive others? Examine yourselves. Whether you be in the faith, whether Christ be in you or not, if you only have foliage and no fruit, repent of your sins now and turn to Christ. He will fully and freely pardon your every sin and he will abide in you and bear much for it. But if you are a believer and you do have faith and you do have faith to answered prayer and you do have faith that forgives others, will be assured in your faith. But we also have indwelling sin. We can all grow in our faith in God. We can all grow in our faith in prayer. And we can all grow in our faith in forgiving others. And if we abide in the vine more and more each day, we will bear much fruit. Our faith in God will grow. Our faith in the expectancy of answered prayer will grow. And our faith to forgive others will also grow. Let us all be fig-bearing, fruitful fig trees. Amen. Let us pray.